from St. Matthew's Gospel, and they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, friends. Happy Feast of the Epiphany. Not really. Today is not the Epiphany. It's the 6th of January. The 12 days of Christmas ends on the 6th of January when the Feast of the Epiphany takes place. Uh, but I'm the rector of this parish, and I've moved it to today so we can celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany. And if you're wondering, well, if this is the Epiphany, where are the wise men? I've got a simple answer for that, and that is this. I forgot to order them. I ordered a new nativity set this year. We had it for Christmas, Mary Joseph and, and the baby Jesus, and I forgot to order the wise men, which makes, means I guess I'm not a very wise man, but that's okay because, quite honestly, the epiphany is not about— look, it's not about turbans and camels and frankincense and myrrh. Nope. It's not about that at all. In fact, what the Feast of the Epiphany is about is about you. It's about truth. It's about, a, it's about the, the craving of the human heart to find out what it is that's calling us to be. It's about people who follow evidence— strange things like stars in the sky, I'll get to that in a minute, who see these movements of God in their lives and follow the evidence who are willing to take a risk to find the truth. And then we see what men and women who do this risky behavior, what happens to them when they find it. So we're going to talk about that today. I'm not going to talk about turbans and camels and frankincense and myrrh, I mean, a little bit, but not really. Uh, we're going to talk about what it is about the human heart, what it is about you and me and every person who has this inkling in their soul that something bigger beyond themselves is out there, and what do we do to find out what that thing is? Three points today. I'm going to look at the challenge of a sign, a star, the challenge of a sign, the risk of following the evidence, and then finally a rea our reaction to truth. So the challenge of a sign. Hey, Bill, you see that? Right? A sign in the sky. The risk of new evidence. Oh, man, we've got to do something about this. And then finally, our reaction to the truth. In fact, what is the truth? Get to that. So first thing, I want to look at the, the challenge of a sign. You know, this— Matthew tells us a story today about these, these wise men that come from the east, right? The Greek word there is the word majoi, it's where you get the word magician from. We talk about three wise men, no, there's probably more. We say three because they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and probably not little pieces of it, big pieces of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but there's probably a lot more than three, maybe, maybe a hundred of them, who knows? It was a, it was a military entourage. And we don't know much about these Magi, except for well, really only a couple things. First of all, they're not Jewish. They're from Persia, probably Iran or Iraq today. They are not Jewish, and despite the hymn, they weren't kings. We three kings of Orient are. There weren't three, and they weren't kings. Sorry. But they were, in fact, here's the thing. These Magi are extremely important, powerful people. They are the men whom the king would hire, kings would hire, to be their, their, their cabinet, their confidence, their confidant, the people that would advise them to make political decisions. They were highly educated, highly motivated, highly skilled, highly connected political operatives. 
Harvard grads, Yale grads, Penn State grads. Maybe not Penn State grads, but maybe. The point is, though, the point is, and this is the the key, this is really the key, is that these men, these wise men, these magi, were the cultural elites of the first century. Smart, well-educated, influential, connected. And they, like everybody else in the first century, except for the Jews, actually, they would believe that these things would happen in the sky. They were signs, important word, signs, that would show you important things were about to occur. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled about what these stars were. Dalgale has lectured on his, his theory about what it was, a conjunction of Jupiter and Venus. Is that right, Doug? Yeah? Okay. Um, anyway, but the point of the matter is the, that the, the, the key to the text here is that these wise men are, well, they're wise. And so they see something in the sky, and they, they say, we gotta, we got to figure this out. we got to investigate what's going on here. What they saw, listen, this is my first point, what they saw was a sign that moved them so strongly that they were challenged to investigate. You ever had an experience in your life where something weird happens and you go, well, that's strange. Strange coincidence. I was just thinking about you and you called me, right, when I was thinking of whatever. All these little things in our lives that happen to us, right? And most people go, well, that's weird, right? Because we don't want to actually do anything about it. The wise men actually do something. They get up off the couch, put the, uh, put their, turn the TV off, put down the uh, pizza and beer, and they go. And they investigate this star. So let me ask you, have you ever seen a sign, a star in this case? Let me give you an example from my own life, just two quick ones. Um, two examples from my own life when God gave me a sign. It wasn't a star. Um, you may not know this about me. If you do, I'm sorry for the repeat, but I was not raised a Christian. I was, I mean, kind of. I went to Catholic school, and I knew a little bit about Jesus, but I really didn't know much, and quite frankly, I didn't really care, to be honest with you. Um, I, and it may, people are surprised, given my naturally pious demeanor, that I wasn't raised a Christian, but I wasn't. Uh, like lots of people, like a lot of you, at one point in your lives, I just kind of went with the program, right? God's out there. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but what did it matter? So what? Life was pretty good. I just kind of bumped along, right? Until, until I went to graduate school to get a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology. It's a super cool field, by the way. But in graduate school, I left Penn State, where I went for undergrad, to graduate school, and two things happened to me there, two stars that God put in my way. First, for the very first time in my life, literally, for the very first time in my life, I was alone. I had always had a huge social network. For an extrovert like me, Penn State was like a cornucopia of things to do, right? I mean, 80,000 students, you're going to find something to get yourself into, right? So Penn State was a veritable treasure trove for me. I had tons of friends, and I loved it, and that was the problem. Because when I went to NC State to get a PhD, not only did I, was I a 22-year-old kid in a cohort of people that were usually 10 years older than me, but I didn't know a person in the entire state of North Carolina. I didn't know a soul. I was lonely, and it forced me to think about things. That was 
step number one. It turned me inward. That was the first star that God placed in front of me. But then there's a second one, and this was even bigger, actually. The second star that God placed in my life is when I went to graduate school, I was what they call a teaching assistant or a TA. And they pay you, I don't know, $10,000 a year, 12,000 bucks a year. And you teach a class, right, alongside a professor. And the class that I taught was statistics and scientific research methodology. You're thinking, oh boy, spare me this one, right? But this, is, this, is, this was transformative for me. I, you know, people don't even know it. Science is not what you study, it's how you study it. Say that again. Science is a method. The scientific method is things that you, a, a method that you use to arrive at a truth claim. So science is not what you study. Science is how you study it. And here I was, a 22-year-old kid, teaching 22-year-old kids about statistics and scientific research methods. And the whole point of science, right, the whole point of studying something scientifically is to uncover laws. Why do you do it? Well, so you can build stuff, so you can make things, rocket ships and particle accelerators and labradoodles, whatever you want, man. If you know how the world works and you know scientific laws, you can make new stuff. But here's what got me. Up until this point, I hadn't really thought about any of this stuff. But across my mind, as I'm teaching this stuff to aunt, these children that were kids that were my age, if there are scientific laws, listen, if I lose you, forgive me, but I'm going to say it anyway. If there are scientific laws, then by definition, there must be a law giver. If there are scientific laws, there must, by definition, be a law creator. Someone or something out there must actually make these laws. Someone or something out there must be a sentient being with a will and a mind. Someone or something out there must have incredible power, all-knowing, all-powerful, omniscient, and outside of time, outside of the created order. I said to my, uh, I, I said, well, you know, maybe, and I, I'm talking to my, professor, my major professor at the time, Dr. Bob Pond, great guy, and I said, uh, I said, you know, maybe this whole science thing, maybe it's just, uh, he said, I told him that I came across this idea that, that law means you must have a lawgiver, and I said, otherwise, all we're doing as human beings is imposing human structure on chaos, right? If there's no law, that means everything is just random, and all science is just human beings making up theories and putting it on top of the world around us. He said, well, that could be true, but here's the problem. What's that? He goes, if it were true, you couldn't build stuff. My point is, friends, here's what got me. Here's what got me. This was God's shot across the bow for me. That it occurred to me that science proves that God exists. And any scientist worth his salt will tell you this, by the way. And it rocked my world. Because up until that point, I had been living like, who cares, right? Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Who cares? But my worldview had been completely smashed. And I knew if that was true, if God was real, I had to follow that sign. Let me ask you this. What stars, what signs has God placed in your life to get your attention? Kind of smack you around a little bit, you know? Maybe, maybe it was teaching statistics and scientific research methods. I don't know. 
Maybe it was the breakup of a marriage, or the death of a loved one, or the birth of a loved one and a new marriage. These stars, friends, are signs that God sends to us to get our attention, to, to remind us of things bigger than ourselves. We all get these things, right? Most people don't even bother to pursue it. I'm going to challenge you. Follow the signs. Follow the stars that God places in your life. The Magi, the big thing about the Magi here is that they followed this star. They struggled. They wrestled with what it meant. And God will do that with you also. You know, it's a long ride from Iran to Jerusalem. Two years is a long time on the back of a camel, I would imagine. But what are the things that God is using in your life, these signs to get your attention? It's not easy. Sometimes it's not pretty. But where has God met you? Where is God meeting you? Where is he tweaking your mind? That's my first point. The signs that God puts in our, in our lives. The second thing is the confrontation of the evidence. This is the coolest thing. The curious wise men, they get up and they go and they follow this star. They go at tremendous risk to themselves, by the way. It's a two-year journey. It's dangerous. And if they're wrong, they've just spent somebody else's money to do something which is a ridiculous journey to Jerusalem, right? So there's a lot of risk involved here with these wise men pursuing this star in the sky. But they follow the evidence. They follow the evidence. Cornelius Van Til. You all know who he is, right? Could you imagine having a name like Cornelius Van Til? Thanks, Dad. But he is one of my favorite theologians ever. He's a, he's a Calvinist. I'm not a Calvinist. But he, has a, he was brilliant. He said something, which I wrote down, and it says this. Van Til said that if you follow anything to its logical conclusion, anything at all, it will lead you to God. Because God is a God of evidence, you see. He gives us proof. The Magi follow this star, right? They, they followed the leading of where this star led them that piqued their curiosity, and they got the evidence that they sought. Irrefutable evidence that the child was exactly where the Hebrew Scriptures said he would be in Bethlehem. So here's my question. God will give you a star. He'll prompt you. He'll lead you. But he's also going to give you evidence. What evidence has God placed in your life? What evidence is God placing in your life to prove to you that he's real, to convince you that what he says to you is true. And let me, let me just challenge you on something, that to follow the evidence is suffering. Going to grad school is suffering. Driving from, or riding a camel from Iran to Jerusalem is suffering. I just finished a book. Father Grader turned me on to it. It's a good book. Not a great book. It's a good book. Called, right? You would agree? Yeah. It's called Live Not By Lies by a guy named Rod Dreher. It's a book about being a Christian in a culture which is becoming increasingly antagonistic towards our beliefs. And I think we're just getting started. It's going to get worse before it gets better or the Lord returns. Uh, may he do so quickly. But Roger Ayer traces through this idea of the church in Russia before the Bolshevik Revolution. And what he points out is something very, very important, that the, 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 Russia, the Soviets crushed the church, right? Shooting priests, burying, uh, you know, all sorts of just terrible stuff. Read the Gulag Archipelago, which I've not read. He did. But it's, it's gruesome. But the point that Dreher makes is this, that sometimes following a sign involves suffering. He said the reason that the, he said the, reason the Western church, that's us, friends, is caving, 
dying a slow death by a thousand cuts is because we have, we have, our, we have forgotten that all we do is seek pleasure and we avoid suffering at all costs. Rather than fight, we just roll over. I think he's onto something here. Because when he interviews former prisoners of the Russian gulag who refused to cave, Dreher notices something, that the suffering that they went through actually increases their faith. That this suffering actually draws us closer to Jesus. Whether it's driving on a camel from Iran to Jerusalem or rotting in a gulag in, in Russian prisons. I want to just challenge you. I'd never thought about this until this past week. I'm wondering, I wonder, in fact, I know now, after thinking about it, praying about it, I wonder if suffering can actually be a star for us, a sign. Because suffering moves, gives us evidence to move us from where we are to where God wants us to be. Suffering, friends, does what signs and stars do. Suffering draws us closer to him. You know, some of you are suffering right now, and if you're not, just wait. Maybe it's just, you know, post-holiday blues. Maybe so, I don't know. Maybe you got something going on in your family or financial stress or health issues or whatever, man. I don't know. You've all got some, Everyone's got something, right? I want, you to, I want you to challenge you this morning on something. That suffering, physical, mental, relational, it can be a sign for God to use to draw you closer to him. Because it shows you how vulnerable you are without Jesus and how much you need him. So let me just challenge you this morning. Don't run away from suffering, right? Follow the star. Follow the sign. Suffer. Live through it. Wait for God's timing. The journey of the wise men, we think of this cute little journey across the desert. Man, it was hard. It was struggle. Two years on a camel, being chased by bandits. And man, if you're wrong, you're, you're a goner. But friends, suffering teaches us to learn to trust God. It's not pleasant, but it is effective. And then finally we see, after this sign and the struggle that involved following the sign, the star, we see the wise men and our reaction to truth. Let me, this is brief, let me show you this. Uh, Matthew tells us in verse 11, I love this, the wise men traveled for two years, right? And he says this, it happened so quick. And going into the house, they, the wise men, saw the child, Jesus, with Mary's mother. No introduction, no, oh, who's here at the front door, this 500 army of wise men and their entourage? They walk in, they see Mary, his mother, and what do they do? They fall down and they worship him. They worship him as God. These are non-Jews. These are non-Christians. Isn't it interesting that these wise men, they found truth what they'd been looking for their entire lives. They, the truth they had struggled to discover, they found at the feet of Jesus. And notice something else, too, about these wise men. God met them where they were. You know, Jews were forbidden from following astrological signs. But God used this astrological sign to draw these wise men. He met them where they were, the most powerful, sophisticated men in the world. And all they can do when they meet just Jesus is fall down and worship. They bow before him. They bow before him, and they offer him gifts. You know, we just had Christmas last week. It seems like it was three weeks ago. 
But on Christmas, you know, when I was a kid, I used to love going, you know, I'd run downstairs and open the Christmas presents and paper flying everywhere. And it's exciting because you're opening gifts. But now as an adult, I'm actually the one giving the gifts, right? And it's expensive, let's be honest with you. <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't even, I open my gifts when my kids bring them over to me, but I don't, or Kathy does, but I actually enjoy just sitting there and watch, watching them open their gifts. Why? Because you know, I, I, I would rather give gifts to people that I love than receive them. Wouldn't you? Because when we love someone, we want to give them gifts. These wise men, they worship Jesus, not just by bowing down before him, but by giving him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Nothing he asked for, I can guarantee you that the two-year-old baby Jesus did not have gold, frankincense, and myrrh on his Christmas list. Guarantee. But I wonder... I was thinking about this this week. I wonder if, you know, 30 years later, when Jesus embarks on his earthly ministry, or even when Joseph had to take the family to Egypt, I wonder if that gold, frankincense, and myrrh came in handy. And I wonder if that gold, frankincense, and myrrh is actually what Jesus used, that wealth, to further the kingdom of God. Friends, worship involves giving. Worship involves giving to Jesus then and now. You know, friends, wise men, as the bumper sticker says, wise men and women, they still seek him. Here's my challenge to you this morning. Where is God prompting you? What are the stars, the signs, the challenges, the struggles, the suffering that God is placing before you in your life to draw you closer to him? Don't be a coward. Don't be a chicken, as my kids would say. Follow those things. And be prepared to meet the God who is the answer to the longings of the, of the heart of those wise men and to the longings of yours. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the ministry of these magi. Help us to see the signs you place in our lives that grab our attention. Give us the courage to follow these and give us the blessing and the joy of meeting you finally face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.